Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Looking out for you and yours with our new life and mortgage protection insurance. First this morning, award-winning Irish author of Room, The Wonder and Haven, Emma Donoghue has adapted her novel The Pull of the Stars for the stage. And she's in Dublin this week, attending rehearsals in the Gate Theatre. And I'm delighted to say she's joined me here in studio. Good morning, Emma Donoghue. Good morning. Lovely to be back. Yes, so lovely to see you again. I haven't seen you for a while. Tell me about rehearsals first and how things have been going. Oh, this is just a dream experience for any playwright. You know, even the the Gate commissioned this playwright. It was their idea. And it was all done over the course of just one year, which doesn't means it didn't drag on the way play development often does. They, I was living in France last year in Paris and they had me over twice for development sessions where I had a couple of days with actors and our wonderful director, Louise Lowe, in a room together. So really, that way you get to create the play in a kind of a cauldron of theatrical and cultural and historical expertise not on your own. So it's not just a written thing that you then try and put on the stage. It's theatrical from the beginning. So yeah, now we're in rehearsals and um, such a brilliant team we have gathered. We have an all-women cast of seven and just talent on every side and 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 we feel so, you know, I'm four days in and I feel the show's taking shape already and it's thrilling. How difficult is it, as someone who's not a writer, I'm just wondering, how difficult is it to adapt your own novel into a play for the stage? Is that difficult? You have to love adaptation as such. You don't want to be trying to keep the maximum percentage of your book. It's not like that. You have to have a genuine enthusiasm for the changes and the differences. So often I'd be saying, you know, lads, let's slash this bit. And they're all saying, no, no, we loved that bit in the book, you know. So I'm not more wedded to the book than the rest of them are, not at all. I just want to make the story live again in the totally different form of theatre using totally different, you know, tools that theatre brings. So, for instance, that the novel, you know, tries to evoke the whole city during the 1918 Spanish flu and the context of, you know, Dublin being in ruins after the rising and the World War One atmosphere and the privations and you've Julia's life, Nurse Julia with her brother at home and you've the porters and a big, big wide slice of life and our play really focuses in. We're right there in the ward. It's incredibly intense. And how involved are you at this stage? I mean, obviously you've adapted your own book, but like in terms of rehearsals, when you're watching it, do you get involved? Do you change things? Or do you stand back at this stage? What I like to do is to come for the first week of rehearsal and really intensely improve the text that week. You know, based on even the first table read, if an actor trips over a phrase, I say to myself, I probably didn't get the intonation quite right for Irish speech there. So I, and I ask them questions and they have questions and, and I probably reworked 20 to 30 pieces of the play already just in the last four days. It's just white hot creativity with this amazing little intense group of collaborators. And, and it's my favourite kind of experience, actually. It's it's as as sociable as the film world, but the writer has more power than in the film mm. world. You know, <laughs> so it's the sweet spot between the kind of isolation of writing fiction and the sociable thrills of film. It's, it's just a kind of ideal way for me to work with other people. So to answer your question, in the first week, I try and make lots of improvements and then I get out of the way and leave them to it. And remind listeners about the pull of the stars. I mean, you talked about it a little there. It's set in Dublin in 1918. 
There's a flu pandemic ripping through the population. And you wrote this pre-COVID, which I, I still find amazing. You know, in a way, it was prompted by the 100-year anniversary of that flu pandemic because there were books about the flu. And um, I read a review of several of them in The Economist on a train. And there was a tiny detail that... Um, pregnant women and women just after birth were the most vulnerable to the flu because it could cause extraordinary terrible side effects in them and their babies and I thought how interesting to have those two medical crises going on simultaneously mm. so different because you know birth so often has a happy mm. ending and the flu the only question was could you survive it so I imagined where did they put these women if they had the flu and were in labour so I imagined a little flu labour ward in a Dublin hospital just choosing the country that I knew best and of course that was such an interesting time in Irish history anyway they were on the cusp of birthing a new Ireland shall we say so um, so, so it was a very easy and quick book to write and then after I delivered it to the publishers this strange new virus Covid arose and I thought ah, nobody will want to buy my book because who'd <laughs> want to read about another pandemic but I was completely wrong. The publishers brought the book out very fast and and it sold it sold like hotcakes. But it was amazing when you read it, like you were writing about face masks and hand hygiene and quarantine, kind of things none of us really, to be honest, had we thought about it much until COVID came along. But you were writing about that. Before COVID came into our lives. Yeah, it was pure fluke. But in a way, what I find really surprising is that, you know, when I was doing the final kind of edits on the novel um, a couple of months into COVID uh, with the help of a a midwife who was in quarantine, she was checking all my midwifery and my... Um, the proofreader was an emergency room doctor who was working away in, on COVID. We didn't need to change anything no. because the basic dynamics in every pandemic are the rich sit safely locked up in their houses saying, oh, those poor living in their filthy, crowded conditions. Look at the how high the death rate is for them. You know, what they call the social determinants of health have been a factor in every plague. I mean, mm. yes, you know, the rich may happen to die too, but they're not going, they're not likely to suffer in such numbers. Um, we really see... Um, that, that every pandemic is a kind of an X-ray that exposes social injustice, which is why, say, Kathleen Lynn has turned out to be at the heart of my book and my play, because really she's this unique figure in giving an analysis of of both poverty and injustice in Ireland and the need for Ireland to be its own country. So she was just this this perfect kind of um, representative of the the um, you know the 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 women's rights movement and the um, you know the the mm. the medical reform and political reform and um, the Republican movement. So um, I have the daunting task of really bringing her to life on the stage too. And I feel particularly under pressure to get that right because she matters so much to people. She's a remarkable woman, actually. Would you like to see the new children's hospital named after her when it's finally finished? No question about it. I can't believe this question is not settled yet because she seems um, the perfect figure to name the hospital for a, a genuine inspiration. So really in, in my play, we're looking at her at the moment where she's just about to, 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 to make the jump and say, you know what, there's no further delay possible. The children of the poor in Dublin need their own hospital. The, the death rates for a baby in their first year in Dublin were worse than the men serving in the trenches in World War One. You know, and Kathleen Lynn just saw it as this absolute emergency that Dublin slums were worse than, were as bad as Calcutta. You know, so, so that feeling of, of sort of urgent social protest and frankly, doing a play about, you know, the, the, the social problems of, of a century ago, it's not purely historical because it mm. reminds you all the more of similarly urgent questions today. And, you know, questions about women's autonomy over their own bodies have not been settled. Questions about how much we're willing to, to share the wealth of a country, what we do about the poor. 
Um, so, so it's funny how, how timely something can feel when it is a historical piece because those questions kind of ring out on stage and you hear them. You hear them as Dublin 2024, you know, and you hear protesters outside. You hear all these questions that have not yet been settled. And actually, you can see how important that is to you, Emma, when you read that book about how women were treated, you know, the mother and baby homes, invasive medical procedures, the judgment that was passed on single mothers. It was important to you, it seems to me, for you to examine those topics. Very much. And, and you know, it's not just that I think fiction can be useful to causes, but the causes can really give fiction an extra fire in its belly. So we have a character, Bridie Sweeney, who's, um, you know, from, uh, from an Irish institution, uh, an orphanage. And everything about Bridie I borrowed from reading the Ryan Report. Mm. You know, oh, that was the most gruelling research I had to do for this play was to go inch by inch through the Ryan Report. And I didn't even pick the most exceptional cases of mm. cruelty. I went for the average, the ordinary stuff, you know, that the typical stuff that came up in report after report. And I think that gives the, the Bridie at the heart of the play a kind of a, you know, creates again a kind of moral urgency because she's there to speak up for those who have no reason to be grateful to, to the country or, or happy with how it is. And yet she still finds it in herself to volunteer in a crisis and to, to help women who are suffering in front of her. It's not all dark and serious, though. Like, there's a love story, too. I don't want to give any spoilers. But even in the darkest time, people find a connection. And, you know, at our first table read, there were just laughs all the time because you get this, you know, gang of disparate women together in a ward, you know, and and immediately the sparks between the characters, the class difference, we're working a lot on class difference. Um, We've, you know, a range from the kind of posh mother from the suburbs right through to the the women of the slums, as they would have been described. Mm. And and there's, there's such, there's such, you know, merriment and moments of solidarity and moments of satire and moments of getting at each other and fights breaking out and then, you know, births intervening so there's no time to fight. So so it's a, it's a lovely situation. It's a really rich, sparky situation staying in that ward. Tell me about Julia Power, your hero nurse. And again, I suppose there are echoes of essential workers during the pandemic. Oh, I thought so much about them. Um, once the novel was finished, and I was thinking, wow, you know, I, I was writing a historical character, but but now say that, you know, as I say, the, the, the proofreader and the, the person giving me midwifery expertise, they were there serving, serving people with COVID as they helped me with my book. Um, I remember those photographs in particular in, in early COVID with the, the healthcare workers with their faces, you know, yeah. marked, painfully marked by the masks. Um, those who were terrified of bringing home the germs mm. to their family and would strip off outside and wash everything down, you know, the, the ways so many of them... Um, uh, suffered and risked their lives while a lot of us stayed home on our computers, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I think I think between writing the novel and the novel being published and then the play happening, I think we are all so much more aware of what it is to be um, a healthcare worker and mm. how, in particular... I think we've tended to just naturalise that as a thing, especially for women, you know, like, oh, they're naturally nurturing. But in fact, in fact, it's a huge thing to mm. decide to help others in this very direct way. And my play is also in some ways about burnout. It's about how much you can possibly take, um, how much you can ask of people. And, uh, you know, the question of how to care for those who are the carers, it comes up a lot. 
It's a while since we've spoken. You're still living in Canada? Yes, indeed. Though, as I say, we were last year in France on uh, Chris's sabbatical and um, both the kids came with us. We felt so lucky as they're, you know, they're much older now. Um, Finn's 20 and 16. So it was great to have them still with us for another family adventure in Paris. Before we discuss Paris, what's it like living in Canada? Canada, Are they very much Canadian children now? Are they conscious of their Irish heritage? Um, You know, Canadians are often very conscious of their heritage from other countries. It's a country of immigrants. So I know so many Canadians who have other passports as well. Um, or say Una's choir is, is touring to Ireland this summer and then Una's going to be in a show at the Lyric in Belfast. So it's <laughs> lovely to see them as they grow up actually getting to to take up opportunities in their in their home territory on my side of things. And then, of course, from Chris, they're they're very attached to their French mm. side as well and their English side. So, yeah, they're, they're multicultural Canadians like so many are. Is it an interesting country to live in? I find it extremely interesting because of its uh, diversity. You know, it doesn't have a kind of a core normal type Canadian and then a few extras, as it mm. were. Um, it's really, uh, most people there are, are just a couple of generations in. And so sometimes people complain that gives it a weak national identity, but I would say it gives it a very um, diverse and, uh, and accommodating national identity because there's no one Canadian way of being, except the compulsory politeness, of course, which I think comes from the fact that we're all so different. <laughs> you cannot assume that somebody is celebrating Christmas um, rather than Hanukkah. You can't yeah. assume that they will, you know, wear a certain thing or have a certain thing on their houses. So there's there's great courtesy. Are you there forever, do you think? And do you ever hanker back to Ireland and do you so keep much, up an Irish It's not so much news? that I hanker back, but I come back. You yeah. know, like I, I seek out opportunities. You know, the, the two films I've made have been with Element Pictures, for instance, mm. though you you, that would have been a good choice for artistic purposes as well. Um, but I have to say, I really liked the fact that I was working with an Irish company. Um, I've done I've done plays with the Abbey I've done, and now I'm doing one with the Gate. It feels particularly lovely to come back here to work because then I'm actually part of the culture, not just mm. visiting. And um, yeah, I come back here on book tours as well and to visit friends and family. So yeah, it's hugely important to me to, to keep one one foot in this country. And why did you spend time in Paris and how beautiful was that? Well, um, Chris is French in origin and she's a professor of French and gender studies and so whenever she gets a sabbatical we like to go to France. And we'd had two years in Nice but since the kids were older we thought Paris would give even better opportunities. And I have to say it was the perfect year because, you know, we'd get to, to work away on our own stuff um, at home but then go off and tour the Normandy beaches or go down the catacombs. We were living in Montparnasse um, and um, and uh, I was writing a novel about Montparnasse in the 1890s all the time I was there. So that's particularly a, a lovely double pleasure it gives to every day because you go for a walk and suddenly you're in, in in the two worlds at once. You know, you're you're in the book you're writing and you're and you're there having having a pastry too. Too many pastries, I have to say. <laughs> no, you're looking well in the memo. I wouldn't worry about that. I was thinking actually, as I was coming in to interview you today, that I was lucky enough to interview you and your dad together on my lovely, show wasn't it? a remember. long time ago. Of course, he's now left this world as your mom has. Do you find it different looking at life when both parents are gone? And is it also less likely that you're drawn back home to Ireland when your parents are no longer here. No, oddly enough, at first I thought, well, the family home isn't there for me to visit, but my siblings have been extremely welcoming and I, you know, I, I still have half my seven siblings here in Ireland. Yeah. So that keeps up the link. Um, and also, I don't know, my, my parents are still very vivid to me in my mind, you know, um, or say I, I, I'd set up a, a scholarship at the NUI 
named for my father recently, the Dennis Donoghue Scholarship to help students who, you know, um, mm. don't come to don't come to it easy. Just like him, he was he was a broke student clinging on by his fingernails. And so, you know, we've set up a fund for students who, for all sorts of different reasons, need financial help to stay on in their degrees. So to be part of something like that, to feel that I'm actually getting to contribute to Irish culture in a way that my father would be chuckling and grinning at, you know, it's it's it feels absolutely wonderful. And they were both such impressive people. But your dad, he was he was a bit of a genius, wasn't he? Like he was exceptionally clever. He was. I feel I speak in, you know, these messy little half sentences, whereas his thoughts just came rolling out, <laughs> perfected in his great domed cranium. You know, <laughs> he was pre-internet. And so his brain did more of the <laughs> the higher level processing. Yeah. I feel, I feel exactly. like everything I say is a rough draft by comparison. You're such a successful writer now. Does it make life and writing much easier? Or like you're saying you're writing and you were writing your novel in Paris by Montparnasse, but... Every time you write a novel, are you still worried that it won't be as good as the last one? Or because you've been so successful, does it kind of make it quite easy to write now? I've always found the writing itself quite easy, but I've always had qualms about will anyone buy or will anyone want this next book? Because frequently when I describe the books I'm planning to write to my friends, I see them blink as if to say, <laughs> oh, Emma, you've gone too far with this one. They frequently mock me about my future novels and they're like, are you still thinking of doing that one? And I say, yes, I still am. And I, I say to them, look, Room sounded bizarre and freakish too. That one was popular. So, you know, I, I can never tell what's going to sell well, but I refuse to worry about it. I just, I just, jump in because I love I simply love writing these books these plays these films I find it such a pleasure I'm not one of these writers for whom it's an onerous task and it doesn't mean that everything I write will come out well but but I just take such pleasure from the putting one word beside another Well it's gone pretty well so far Emma Donoghue and The Pull of the Stars previews in the Gate Theatre from the 5th of April and it opens on the 10th of April and it will run until the 12th of May tickets of course from GateTheatre.com and since we were talking about the great Dr Kathleen Lynn earlier, I see this evening on the History Show here on this channel, Harriet Wheelock and Dr Mary McAuliffe will be talking about their book. So listeners might want to tune into that at six o'clock Wonderful. this evening. Emma, thanks so much. It's been lovely. And about Emma, gorgeous to listen to Emma Donoghue this morning. Great to listen to someone of vision, talent and social conscience. And one more morning, Mary, I'm really enjoying the interview with Emma. I've just finished reading The Pull of the Stars and as a midwife, I really enjoyed the book. I'm looking forward to reading more about it. That's from Mary Ryan and more about Dr. Lynn.